Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse, and it's a truly great honor to welcome the gentleman to the show that I'm going to introduce you to today. We're going to be talking about an extremely difficult, sensitive subject having to do with the 100,000-plus Native American children that were taken from their family homes, put into government boarding schools, and beaten physically, mentally, and spiritually so that the part of them that's Native American, their entire core, would be extracted from them and they would just be left as people, but not full human beings. We've invited Randy Vasquez, who is the director of The Thick Dark Fog, a new documentary that has just come out covering the story of Walter Little Moon, a Lakota man who went through many horrific experiences as a young child with other children like him in these boarding schools. It is not so much today about telling the victimization stories, perpetuating victimization, but to remind all of us that something as atrocious as this went on in the not-so-distant past, and there are people still trying to heal from this, thank God that Walter and Randy and his team put this film together. I've just seen it this morning. You should all see it when you have a chance in your area. It comes out in June or July of this year on PBS. Randy Vasquez is known as being an actor, a producer, and a director. Really did a beautiful job directing this film. He produced the documentary Testimony, the Maria Guardardo story. It's an award-winning film. And Walter, who was courageous enough to talk about his own story and the stories of his peoples that have gone through this, he has come out with his own autobiography called They Called Me Uncivilized, the memoir of an everyday Lakota man from Wounded Knee, written with his wife, Jane Ridgway, which I want to recommend that you pick up. It's the account of his experience of the schools. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome, Randy Vasquez and Walter Littlemoon to its rainmaking time. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for being with me. Good to be here. Thank you for uh, helping us get the word out. My pleasure. Yeah. It's very painful having watched that film. Are you okay? <laughs> I'm sad. I'm very sad. It's extraordinary. That most of this country does not know what children and what families went through and what the Native American peoples have gone through. I just want to tell you that while the documentary had light at the end of the tunnel, that it was very painful to watch for me. I feel sad for the aftermath of what's left for you. And I guess, Walter, you, I'd like to start with you. One of the things you said toward the end of the film is you talked about what it means to be a human being from the Lakota perspective, and I'd really like you to open the show with that. Okay. Well, uh, we started this uh, book as uh, more more of uh, what I was like in the present day because I, well, I re recognized the fact that I was estranged from my own kids. And I couldn't figure out uh, 
uh, ways to try to get uh, closer to them. Or, you know, in other words, to be a better father. But uh, you know, there was nothing in my mind. It was just blank. And, uh, you know, I could read books. I could watch TV. I could uh, watch uh, other documentaries. But uh, nothing uh, really uh, pointed into the direction of what uh, uh, a positive parent should be. It was always suggestions, but... Uh, uh, there was nothing that I could act out to be a good father. And I had all the words in my mind, but I couldn't put any behaviors to it. That's uh, something that I learned in boarding school was to speak English. And I recognized the fact that English has no acting out. It's just a lot of words. What does that mean? Uh, it means that perfect grammar. You get A's for if you speak good words, if you put them in the right uh, places and stuff like that. But how do you act out uh, the word positive? You know, there's good and there's uh, uh, good and bad, but that's only two directions. There's uh, like you know, fat and skinny, and there's uh, uh, other words that uh, really have no meaning. And I'm good at pronouncing words. And in school, I was good at. It. I learned. I learned in a, uh, uh, how to pronounce these uh, words perfectly. But what do you do after you pronounce a word? Do you sit there like a bump on a log and not do anything about it? You know, like an example, uh, uh, the word walking, getting up to walk. And I could say that uh, forward, backward, sideways, any way that you can think about it in terms of uh, perfect grammar. But as long as I sit there, then all there are is just words. In Lakota, if you say, uh, I'm going to get up and walk, then that's what you have to do. you got to get up, and then you take a few steps, and then your words come out. It's a little bit different from English. Does that mean, in a sense, that Lakota language is verb-oriented? Yeah. Okay. So uh, a lot of uh, our language is uh, like, like saying they're backwards. Instead of, in an example, if I wanted to go town, I would say town first, and then wanted to afterwards, or the second part of it. And... Uh, this makes a big difference in the Lakota. And in English, uh, there's no difference at all. Uh, people listen to your words, not necessarily listen to the behavior of uh, what these words are about. And that's what makes it hard uh, for a, a person who was, uh, who was in boarding school to try to understand what the home life was about. When we started this book... There was so many things about me that I didn't know. And one of them was uh, the fragmented thinking and uh, the fragmented uh, speaking. You know, like I said, I could speak English, but uh, whenever it got to a painful part, then I could switch the subject to something else. And uh, these are the things that you learned in boarding school. Uh, they're not positive, and when you bring this stuff home and you grow up with it, that's what your life is. 
So you had this... I had no memories about what I was as a Lakota. And I had to understand uh, the simple word of being a Lakota. What is Lakota? I had to come uh, come to grips with that and try to understand what that meant. And I finally figured out that being a Lakota is uh, to be a human being, to be part of a human, uh, uh, the human brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever that, whatever that may be. You know, it's like a group. You know, you got animals that belong to certain groups. You got human beings that belong to a certain group. But you can't belong to that group until you have honor and well. Uh, uh, respect and dignity that's required of that uh, of that group. So to become a human being, you have to have uh, honor and dignity, and pride, and all of this stuff makes you a human being. And so negative doesn't fit in there any place. It doesn't fit at all. And so to live that way, it's very difficult. It takes a lot of uh, persistence and a lot of determination on a daily basis. Uh, you know, it only, it's only good for uh, maybe 12 hours. Then after that, you have to take a rest and start all over again. So every day is special. So when you get up in the morning, you have to look at the fact that today is a brand new day. And what happened yesterday is going to be there, but you don't practice that. You practice a little bit more harder in order to become a little bit more stronger in respect and honor again. So that that's uh, some things that uh, boarding school didn't teach us. They took that away from us. The level of physical abuse was palpable throughout the entire film, really palpable, and the attempts to break your spirit was profound. How did you avoid having your spirit broken? Uh, really don't know at the, at the time uh, what I knew about life was uh, just what existed around me my whole world was maybe an acre of land or maybe two acres of land that was my whole world and within that uh, world and I uh, just about every species of bird uh, I could pronounce uh, I could pronounce their names in Lakota you know like the water the rain and people came in there, and they talked about certain things, so I had to listen. And uh, when I went to boarding school, then all of that was uh, forced out of me. I, you know, they pounded something else in my head, like uh, learning how to speak English, not necessarily uh, learning how to read a dictionary, but to speak uh, English and do math, uh, social studies, and uh, you know, stuff like that. And then we had to stay there uh, for nine months out of the year. So for nine months, that was pounded into me uh, day and night. I want you to share with the audience about the fact that you were extracted from your parents' home. Yeah, that was uh, that's still a little, <clears throat> a little bit uh, emotional for me. I have, uh, like Jane, uh, does a lot of interpretation for me. I'd like Jane to speak for me because... Uh, uh, because of my blood degree, I'm considered a half to full blood. And half to full blood on this reservation is considered incompetent. And then there's the half and less that are considered competent. Uh, the fee patent or the patent fee era of this uh, uh, time. 
So that makes a big difference. And uh, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs can come in there and say, you know, you're incompetent. Whatever you say doesn't make any sense, and it has no uh, legal value or legal standing. And that takes care of me. So in order to get around that, I have to have an interpreter. And uh, interpreter is also written into the 68 Treaty. And because of that, that that's what makes my uh, word legal. Without that, my word is not legal. You understand what I mean? It's stupefying. It sounds silly, but uh, it, it's a workable thing. It's a kind of a roundabout way of corruption. You mean because of your bloodline? You cannot comfortably and at peace answer the question I asked you. No. Unbelievable. That's, uh, that still exists today, but it might not be practiced, but it's still here, like the blue laws. And uh, no matter how educated I become, I'm still incompetent. So That's you... why an interpreter is very important to me. So you can't even acknowledge that the government came and extracted you as a young child? I I could talk about it, but to make it legal, that's where I need an interpreter. Car showed up one day. I think that was about after my fifth birthday. And uh, my mother was there. My brothers had, had already left, but I was still there. And they came after me. Two men got out of the car. And uh, they opened up the door. This was one of those older, older, uh, it kind of reminded me of a cockroach. You know, the high uh, 1941 or 40, 44, somewhere around there. Had that little uh, insignia, insignia on the side of the door, like a little badge, said U.S. government. That was, I remember that. It was a gray car. And uh, these two men got out, and uh, my mother was standing there crying, and she said, you know, you have to go with these uh, with these people. And uh, so they put me in the back, and that was it. The next thing I knew, you know, we traveled for uh, maybe a uh, half hour, maybe uh, 40 minutes or so, ended up with this strange place, and it was a strange-smelling place. Everything was strange. There were buildings. I knew what buildings were, but I've never seen buildings like this. And people were all talking a strange uh, language, which was English. I didn't speak English. I didn't understand English because I always spoke Lakota. And uh, that was my first experience there. And when I got off, the, got out of the car. Uh, the guy opened it up, and uh, he opened the door, and he said, you know, he waved. He uh, used his hand like, you know, come forward. And uh, that was all. Uh, then there was a lady there, and she grabbed me on the shoulder. I think it was on my left side of the shoulder, and just drug me along or just pushed me right, right alongside of her. And just, you know, they led me down into a basement and then into a little room. And uh, there was a lady standing there, and they spoke, they said something, but I didn't understand. And uh, she spoke Lakota to me, and, they said that, that it, and she said, take your clothes off. Now, these things still stayed in my mind on that first day. And then uh, 
my brother showed up there, and then he he started talking to me. So that was my first day at school. You know, everything was strange. There was uh, the smell of the building, the smell of clothing. Everything was just completely uh, whole. A whole new uh, experience. This was uh, what I would call uh, uh, cultural cultural shock. Yeah. Something that I think all of the kids on the on this reservation go through when they have to attend boarding school, and it's something that they don't forget. They might cover it up, but uh, the behavior of that incident still stays with you, and it's just uh, set into your mind. And there's so many other things that take place at that time that you don't you don't have time to think about it. And this uh, this is a continuing thing from that day on till the time you leave that school. It, uh, you know, day after day, it's the same old thing, but it's done completely different. I understand that you were not allowed to play, to have fun. No, uh, there was always somebody watching us. Uh, eventually we called these people squealers. They told on you, if you spoke Lakota or if you acted out anything in Lakota, they told on you. That was the way they got favors. And uh, the rest of us, we got punished for, uh, you know, looking like an Indian or smelling like an Indian or behaving like an Indian. And uh, we had, uh, you know, different ways of playing. Not necessarily in English. You know, we didn't know anything about baseball or basketball or stuff like that. Sometimes we had our own toys. We made our own toys at home. But we weren't allowed to take them to school. So uh, all of these games were strange to us. Uh, I remember uh, the kindergarten class that I went to. Well, that's what I learned later, that this... uh, a uh, place was called kindergarten or primary. Back then, that was the word primary. And uh, the first uh, time they took me into that building, my brother was the one that took me into that building and told me I had to stay there. But he spoke Lakota to me. And when he left, uh, the teacher, I remember her because she was very scary. Uh, she was, uh, well, she was tall to me. And her hair was what really frightened me, because it was piled up, uh, you know what a beehive looks like. That's what, it, uh, that's what it reminded me of, and that stayed with me. And uh, her dress uh, was kind of a, like uh, uh, a dark grayish color. Sounds like a prison system. I wanted to find out, Randy, how you got involved with this project and what led you to direct this film. Oh boy! Wow. So I'll give the I can give a short answer to that. That's okay. I, um, I mean, we have time for you. We have time. Well, I think. Well, just listening to Walter talk reminds me of my own childhood and probably the impetus for you know making his, uh, putting his life on film, his boarding school experience. Um, when I was five years old, my parents divorced. I was living down in San Diego, and my father was from Mexico. My mother was a coal miner's daughter from West Virginia, you know, a white woman and who'd come out to the West Coast and met my father in college here in Los Angeles. And they divorced when I was five, and 
My uh, mother had custody of my brother and I, and so she took us back to North Carolina. And I think that's how I relate to Walter's experience, because it was like being relocated against my will, albeit to my mother's family, who was a very loving family and everything. But I remember going to school in the first grade there, and I just felt like I was in the wrong place. I felt like my world was not right and I was very sad why am I not in California why is my mother not with my father why are we here in this strange place so you know I struggled through that through childhood and that was kind of cultural show you know you're you're in Southern California and then all of a sudden you're in the American South and this is 1966 so you can kind of imagine kind of liberal, you know, I was with a lot of other people, you know, the Mexican side of my family, and all of a sudden I'm with my white side of my family, and they're talking kind of strange accent, Uh, you know, there aren't people that look like me anymore, Um, so that was kind of the foundation, I think, of the rest of my life, trying to balance my, the Mexican side of myself, living in American white society, and trying to be accepted. But uh, before I did Walter's film, you know, I'd been an actor, and um, I met this woman, Maria Guardado, in, in 1997 at this uh, activist group. Uh, there was this protest against the CIA and its involvement with uh, drugs, drugs for arms back in 1987, the whole Oliver North thing, uh, arming the Nicaraguan rebels uh and cocaine drug sales in the ghettos of America in this case uh, south central los angeles so i met this woman at this anti cia uh protest meeting and i was going to do a documentary on this whole group because i was fascinated by it why what was all this about but this woman would stand up in the meetings and talk about you know i was kidnapped by the cia in 1980 in el salvador by the death squads, I was tortured, I was raped, uh, and I survived. And so I ended up, long story short, I ended up doing this documentary on this woman, her story of survival. And in 2001, I finished it and went to a lot of festivals, won a lot of awards. And, um, and so after that, I was trying to, well, you know, what am I going to do for a follow-up film? I got involved in a couple projects that I couldn't, my heart wasn't into them. And in nineteen and two thousand three, I started reading about the boarding schools, and I was, oh wow, why didn't I know about this? I can, I, I found myself relating to kids being taken away from their families and being put in schools that they didn't like, um, and it had a lot to do with their ethnic identity being being dismissed. And uh, so, I started reading about this, and I found uh, this term complex post-traumatic stress disorder in some of the books I was reading. So I called up the Harvard psychologist that had was the pioneer in this fi- field, um, Judith Herman. Uh, complex post-traumatic stress is basically PTSD as it occurs in ch- childhood and how the symptoms are suppressed and they manifest themselves in adulthood through you know violent behavior, and drinking drugs, this type of thing. Um, Unresolved trauma, childhood trauma. So I talked to this the, Judith Herman at Harvard. She, I told her what I was doing, native uh, boarding school stuff, and she said, "Well, a colleague of mine works with natives. Why don't you talk to her?" So I called up this woman, Jamie Shore, and told her what I was doing. She says, "You need. I know this man in Wounded Knee, Walter Little Moon, 
why don't you give him a call? Sounds like you guys could get together. So I called Walter. I talked to Walter and his wife. This is, what, uh, September 2004. And at the time, he uh, they were struggling to get uh, Walter's memoirs published. Different publishers were giving him a hard time, giving him a runaround, and they were just trying to get their message out of uh, his boarding school experience and his healing from it. And So... I said, listen, I, you know what? I just did this documentary about this woman from El Salvador. Why don't you take a look at it? And if you're interested and if you want to do a film on your experience, you know, get back to me on it. And so I believe they took a couple of weeks to watch it. And they, we talked again and, and they agreed to say, yeah, let's go forward on a film about this. And hit a wider audience about what's happened to a lot of Native people across the country. So... Walter and Jane invited me out there, what, Thanksgiving 2004. I was out there for a couple of weeks, did my first filming with Walter, interviews, went out to the school, and I just, you know, filmed them living their lives, everyday life, and uh, that was the beginning of it. I think that answers your question, doesn't it? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Did you think that you would be able to capture the complex texture of what Walter and other children of the tribes went through? No, I didn't. I I was hoping to get the best story I could and the details. I know it's it's for one man's experience to cover the, the thousands of kids that went to school is impossible because there's so many experiences, but I knew that Walter's story was, I, as, I, we, as I learned more about it, I learned that People, so many kids had gone through what he went through, and even worse, actually, uh, a lot worse. But generally, the psychological uh, abuse was key, the whole destruction of identity. Um, but I, you know, I, it's hard to get, it was hard for me to get, uh, I think, you know, being an outsider and coming in, I know that it was hard for Walter to talk about a lot of things, so I really didn't push him. I kind of let him dictate what he would say to me and just kind of leave it at that because I know it was hard for him and I didn't really, uh, you know, I didn't want to, you know, put him in places that he didn't want to go, although he was very courageous in going to the places that he did, as you saw in the film. Um, and at one point i got to tell you that... Uh, you know, I started off with Walter, but then I expanded the film to four characters in Michigan, Walter in South Dakota, a woman in Arizona, and a man in Alaska. And they were all healing from their boarding school experiences. And I thought this would be good because it kind of shows the scope of the policy. It was all over the country, not just in South Dakota, but it was all over and affected uh, Native people all over this country. And um, anyway, that kind of collapsed. Uh, under the weight of its own ambition, people dropped out, and so I just went back to Walter, and we ended up uh, getting a grant and finishing the film. But, you know, it's it's not the definitive boarding school documentary, um, but I'm hoping that when it gets out there, it'll it'll touch a nerve, it'll get other people to tell their stories. Uh, I think Walter's message is, if I can do this, you can do this. That's kind of it. Were you concerned about how it would be funded, though? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was paying for it a lot of my own. I think in the first six or seven years, I put about $50,000 of my own money into it. And I was getting some donations. And we kept applying to Native American Public Telecommunications there in Lincoln, Nebraska, and we finally got the grant. 
for a hundred thousand dollars and we put that to good use and uh we kept raising other money and we're still <laughs> we still need about ten thousand dollars more to finish to get to pay for all the archival stuff that you saw in the film and we're actually having a fundraiser in a couple of weeks here in los angeles um but yeah, we finally did it, and it's basically, you know, it's ninety, you know, ninety-eight percent finished, and it's going to be on PBS beginning in June. Uh, I don't know the exact times or channels, but uh, and right now it's it's available to educational institutions, you know, colleges, universities, schools, treatment programs, and then once it does air on uh, television in the summer, it'll be made of uh, at a much cheaper. Uh, price to you know individuals home 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 sales what do you think is the universal meta message mm-hmm. of a story like this and a message like this to everybody who is going to see it where are you both visioning people will evolve to after seeing this one of the problems that i ran ran into this is my personal experience is uh uh, I couldn't put any words to uh, the experience of boarding school. I just didn't have any right uh, description of it. Uh, you know, for an example, we've got uh, mental health workers on the reservation here. We've got counselors. But uh, to d- most of them are trained under uh, blue-collar workers or blue-collar addiction or whatever. So they they don't know how to deal with uh, uh, the culture here. They don't know how to deal with people. There's still uh, a large number of people here on this reservation who speak Lakota, and they still have uh, uh, behaviors. They still have the respect and honor and dignity. Those that didn't go to boarding school, they're, they're strong in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, those of us that went to boarding school... All of this was uh, disguised as education, a better way of life, uh, a better job. But none of this has ever materialized because of uh, the education that we got. We got an education, but it was a very poor quality education. We only knew how to speak English. We didn't know how to define any of the words. So when it came down to writing our uh, book... And uh, Jane was here, and she's very good at putting this into the English language. So that's when I began to realize that there are other experiences, that there are other uh, 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 other things that students had experienced but didn't have the words to clearly uh, define or clearly interpret what they were going through. A lot of them don't recognize the fact that all of this stuff comes that we experience on a boarding school, uh, you know, the cultural genocide here, the uh, disrespect, the dishonor, the, uh, uh, the things that we uh, drink about, the things that we think about, all of this comes directly from boarding school. And uh, we had to put the words to it. And I didn't know anything about uh, what they called the uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Like uh, uh, PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder, has a beginning and it has an end. 
complex post-traumatic stress disorder goes back generation after generation to the beginning of uh, probably even back to 1492. That's usually my cutoff date. I like speaking about 1492. That's when everything started for us. But anyway, uh, uh, what boarding school had left us with was nothing, period. Uh, the reality of being Lakota is uh, kill the Indian and save the child or save the man. That was the whole uh, boarding school experience. This started for us, uh, a guy named Pratt, the Carlisle School. My uncle attended the Carlisle School. But he spoke uh, English, but he also spoke uh, Northern Cheyenne, and he maintained that. So I spoke Lakota in boarding school, but I found different ways of trying to uh, hang on to that, and I don't know why until later on in life. And uh, we used to sneak off just to speak uh, Lakota, go into drain systems or go into... uh, We had this little place. there was uh we had uh dairy 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 cows at boarding school and they gave they gave us milk but there was a place where they had haystacks and then later on they made uh the square bales so inside of one of those haystacks we had a little meeting place there and that's where we would uh, uh speak lakota without uh, uh the fear of somebody watching us or somebody uh, telling on us but uh, the sad part of that is, you know, in, in one sense it sounds uh, exciting, but in another sense uh, you grew up with that behavior. So in order to speak Lakota uh, today, even from, away from boarding school, you still look over your shoulder. You still uh, check everybody around you to make sure that they're Lakotas. This is part of uh, the complex it, uh, once you leave boarding school and what you practice there goes with you and you grow up with that. And so today when I uh, speak Lakota, this thing, uh, this nagging, uh, niggling thing in the back of my mind is always there. It's, you know, the question is, uh, is somebody watching? Is somebody going to squeal on you? Is somebody going to tell on you? Are you going to get punished for speaking Lakota? So I have to go through all of that on a daily basis. Do you think it's possible for you to go through some type of a transformational healing process where you completely cleanse what happened to you so that you have a past, but that it's not traumatizing and living in you in the present? Not really. Not until I can put some uh, good words, uh, good positive words on the boarding school experience. And there isn't too many, and this is the only word so far that we have been able to come up with at this complex post-traumatic stress disorder. But uh, Jamie Shoren is the one that explained a lot of this uh, in, in a language, and Jane put it into a language that I could understand, into uh, the English language. And I can understand it in Lakota. Uh, in Lakota, they call it uh, Chante Shicha. But uh, when you translate that, it just means uh, bad heart. Bad heart doesn't mean that your heart is bad. It just you've got sad uh, feelings. But uh, what do you? Where do these sad feelings come from? That that's that's the whole question that we need to answer for ourselves. Isn't the Lakota tribe have a medicine man or a medicine woman? 
Yeah, we have, uh, we call him, uh, we used to call him uh, uh, the holy man, Wichasha uh, Wakam. But uh, Christianity and organized religion had influenced a lot of these uh, so-called dreams, or dreamers. And so they bring in um, cultural things, uh, not cultural things, but religious congregations. You know, uh, any church organized religion has a congregation. Any Christianity, they have to have a congregation. And they have uh, special needs for that, and they have special purposes for that. So that is brought into our uh, spirituality, our uh, not spirituality, but our uh, ceremonies. Our ceremonies are not... Or should be based on uh, religion or anything like that. There's a different reason for our uh, ceremonies, and people haven't been able to explain that to the local people. So Christianity uh, comes in there and plays a role in that, and this is what throws the whole idea of ceremonies completely off the track. We end up going into uh, going in the opposite direction. And we should be going in a, in a positive direction, but we're going into a negative direction. Are you basically saying that even the ceremonies have been infiltrated? Oh, yeah. You don't have pure Lakota ceremonies? Not anymore. You haven't found one that you were comfortable with? None, none at all because of uh, individuality. Lakota is an individuality. Lakota is individual. People grow up individual. Women have their own language. Men have their own language. Men, uh, women have their own dances. So do the men. There's a line in between that. But that line has been stepped on and abused so many times that it's, very, it's almost invisible. So a lot of that stuff has to be dusted off. They have to be brought back into the uh, original form. What is our ceremonies about? It's not about, and it shouldn't be about Christianity, our religion. But we don't understand what uh, the Creator is about. We don't know because boarding school took that away from us. Uh, Can you share something? Recognize uh, what the Creator is about. You need to remember. You, uh, a person needs to hear, uh, not listen, but to hear. A person needs to see. A person needs to feel. All of these things are important. All of these come under the heading of respect, honor, and dignity, and pride. And that's what Lakota is about, not what boarding school is about. Boarding school is something that know, tried to get rid of what the original Lakota was all about. Can you, can there you... are still dreamers out here. And they all have dreams, but dreams are no longer followed. There's always those shortcuts. There's always that corruption. How about your sweat lodges? Do you find that your sweat lodges have been preserved? No. Like you said, sweat lodge. The name has been changed. Well, tell us what it should be. The original name that they came, uh, that I remember growing up around was, uh, Inipi. Uh, Inipi, uh, the real, uh, the, the original word is Kinipi. 
coming back to life. Uh, that's, that's the real word for it. I mean, the original word for it. But it's been shortened to inipi. Inipi kaha. Uh, not, not a sweat lodge. You don't go in there to sweat. So the name was changed. Uh, uh, what do you call the uh, slang term? And that's all it is—a slang term. But it's very derogative. You don't. Uh, a sweat lodge is not a sweat lodge. A lodge is a, a place where you uh, renew your thoughts, you renew your behaviors, you put those together. Whatever is negative, you throw it out. You leave it there. You don't take it home with you. What you take home is positive understanding of yourself. Not what the lodge is about, but understanding of yourself, your mind, your, your soul. You put those all together and you come out as a brand new human being. Not as a brand new Lakota, but as a brand new human being. Good positive thoughts, good positive behavior, good positive eyesight, good positive, good positive way of hearing things. It's very difficult until you start practicing it because it's an individual understanding. What I talk to you about is basically what happens in my mind. Maybe the next person might be different. But I don't condemn the next person for the way he thinks. That whatever he thinks, that's what fits him. Whatever way that I think, that's the way it fits my mind. That's the way that my mind operates. But the purpose of an inipi, as you're describing, is to yeah, come back one, to life. You go the in. Other part of it yeah. uh, is uh, learning how to communicate with the Creator. You don't communicate uh, the, uh, with the Creator. Uh, you learn how to communicate there. You are taught these things. Who teaches you? Uh, whatever spirits come in there. They're the ones that teach you. Uh, the wisdom of elderly, uh, you probably heard of that before. Sure. Uh, the wisdom of elderly is not a human being. An elderly is not a human being. It's not a person that is uh, aged. Sometimes you're going to find a six-year-old mind in an 80-year-old body. Sometimes you're going to find an 80-year-old body in a six-year-old, uh, I mean, an uh, eight-year-old mind in a six-year-old body. Right. So you have to keep that in mind. Uh, the elderly of this life is uh, the sunshine, uh, the grass, the rain, uh, animals, uh, plants, flowers. All of these are the elderly, rocks. These are the elderly of this uh, of this life, and if we don't know how to listen to them, if we don't know how to hear them, then we're just wasting our time. We can't become a human being until we learn how to listen to them. And you have to sit still in order to and uh, have a concentration, a strong concentration, a strong persistence to learn. And that way, when you get all of that accomplished within that uh, inipi, then you could sit out in the open and you could hear uh, what these trees are talking about. They don't speak the language, that uh, the words that we use. They have their own language. Flowers have their own language. Sometimes you feel their language, not words. 
but you feel their language, like the sunset. That has its own language, but you have to feel it, not the words. You don't put it into words. You enjoy that. This is uh, almost like uh, dealing with your own stressful, stressful days. If you don't know how to use that sun, uh, sunset, then you miss the whole, uh, your stress gets a little bit more stronger. So that's what, these are the things that you learn within the lodge, within the Inipi. But first, we have to learn how to pronounce it in a respectful way. That was beautiful. Uh, No, the sweat lodge is something that shouldn't be used at all. Or even, you know, the term sun dancers. All of that is disrespectful. We don't even know that. That's the sad part of it. The reality is that we have no respect for these words anymore. Because we're little children. We're the youngest species of life on this planet. And the animals, uh, the rest of it was here before us. And we, I remember one elderly uh, telling me that we came from a red world to a blue world. This was way back in the 50s when I was growing up. And I had never thought anything about that. And I don't even know what he was telling me until later on when they first uh, sent that little Sputnik, uh, that rocket, a little uh, satellite up there to take pictures. And from a distance, this world is blue. But I grew up thinking this world was brown and green because that's what my world was about at that time. Springtime, everything was green. And in the wintertime, everything was white. And uh, in the fall, everything was brown. So that's, that's what I knew that this world was all about. But these uh, pictures from a distance proved me wrong that this world is blue. Now, how this elderly knew about that, I don't know. So a lot of these uh, information, a lot of the information that I, uh, that I was told at, the young, at a young age, I, I didn't remember because of boarding school. It was suppressed. Later on, after uh, I started uh, digging around and leading, uh, reading my uh, great-grandmother's autobiography, uh, her name was Iron Teeth. She was northern Cheyenne. Her husband was, uh, she called him Red Pipe. And when, when she talked about uh, even meeting people like uh, uh, a person who was a half-white man, and then the full white man, that's how she described him. And I can't remember the uh, scout's name or the guy that worked for the Army. It was a pretty well-known uh, trapper. Or, uh, he kind of, hang on. Oh, Jim Bridger. Jane had to remind me of Jim Bridger. Okay. And that she actually met him. And uh, his uh, his uh, assistant, I guess, was uh, half, uh, half black and half white. So they called him the half-white man. So that's how she had described him. But uh, she told everything that she grew up around. Uh, she lived uh, the original way. She lived to be 95 years old. But the thing that impressed me was that she was able to chop wood at 95 years old and uh, still live a good life without being bent over 
I've seen pictures of her at 95 years old, and she was very straight back. Her face was just uh, bright, and I mean, there was a lot of wrinkles and stuff like that, but her face was very intelligent at that time. Do you think it's possible to get through the intense level of victimization your people continue to experience in different ways that the public may or may not be aware of? Do you think it's possible to transmute it so that you don't feel like someone who was victimized anymore? Well, in my own experience, uh, after uh, writing this book, uh, they called me uncivilized, uh, the uh, fragmented thinking that went on in my mind. What Jane did was she cut everything up in little pieces. Like uh, everything that I talked about, she wrote it down. And when I switched uh, subjects, she would cut that part out and put it into a, a different paragraph. And that gave me the uh, ability to recognize that uh, things were painful, but there was also uh, the development of uh, the fragmentation of my mind. I had to put those all back together. But in the end of all of the uh, cutting and snipping and re-gluing everything and putting everything back together, what I learned was that... uh, the memories will always be there, but I'm going to be in charge as an individual that I can control uh, my own uh, future, my own uh, pain, pain level. I can control all of that, and that's all I need at the moment. That's great. Maybe I'll never be able to reach 100%, but what I, what I have is acceptable, and I can live with that. That is my own happiness. Are you happy now? Well, I'm, I'm okay. Like I said, it's acceptable. Maybe I'll learn to be happy, but I've got dogs. Uh, we've got a cat, and Jane is here, and we live in our <laughs> own home. Yes. Yeah, we get to walk in the uh, evenings. So those are the extent of my uh, happiness. I saw your dogs in the film. They were darling. Oh. <laughs> yeah, these are dogs that people throw away, so we take them in. They looked pretty happy in the film to me. Oh, yeah. They, they got the whole couch, the whole couch that uh, they sleep on. There's three of them now. We just had another one that showed up. So we call him Mudley. He's uh, part of the family, and uh, him and uh, Mudley and our dog, I mean our cat, his name is Pasu. Pasu is nose in Lakota. <laughs> and uh, he lives up to his name, but they have this thing going. They get into fights. <laughs> and it's just, you know, the regular cat and dog thing. Randy, when people see this film of yours about Walter's story and the other 100,000-plus children that went through this, do you think it's possible for people to see beyond the victimization, the level of it? I think so. When you say the words victimization and, and sit it alongside American Indians, I think, well... What people generally think maybe is okay. The land was taken away. Yeah, they were they were cheated. But this boarding school experience, I just don't think they know much about. And I think that so much in life, with all human beings, we're, we are so defined by our childhood experience that it makes sense to me that if people know this story and see what was done to these children, uh, government policy, government mandate, then the, that, that it will hopefully break down some sort of stereotypes that we might have 
the general public might have about Indians being drunk, Indians being lazy, and say, wow, now I have an understanding of why there's so much alcoholism in Indian country, you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a result of boarding schools in large part. So that's why I made the film, really, was to address the stereotypes of the drunk Indian, because I didn't understand what's a stereotype of the drunk Indian. I didn't, I didn't accept the argument that it's just a genetic thing. Um, and once I found out about the boarding schools and what was happening to these children, uh, really heinous things, thought out, planned, uh, evil things that adults can do to kids. Um, I thought, well, that makes sense to me. I would probably be a drink or two to, to not think about what happened to me. Um, so I think in, in my, in my efforts, in my own small way, making a film, uh, about this subject matter can make some kind of positive change in the world. It also addresses a puzzle piece, which I'm sure people have asked and wondered, why is there so much alcoholism on the tribal lands? And I think it definitely addresses it directly. It was a drinking issue. It's also the lack of parenting skills that Walter mentioned because of his relationship with his kids. That, you know, you're, you're separated from your parents for so long, and they're certainly not teaching you how to be a good parent at these schools. And so you, you kind of become alienated from parenthood. And then when you become an adult, you don't, you don't have the tools. So um, that's an also important uh, thing in the film. If you can get a child to have a fundamental core disconnect at a young enough age yeah. and have no boundaries and to think and to expect that abuse is normal, right. that's how these things become generational. Yeah, and Jamie Shorn talks about that, not so much in the film, but I remember in an interview she talked about how the that the, the expected day-to-day -day activity involves, you know, being dehumanized, being punished, and it just becomes a normal thing. And then all of a sudden you've got a child growing up with no self-esteem, and uh, you got problems. In the film, when the Brussels collector... Mm -hmm. came to Walter's brother. Yeah. Did that Brussels collector end up giving Walter and his family those photos back of his own family? I believe Walter. Walter, didn't you say, no, you keep them. You can keep them better than I can at home. Is Yeah, we uh, received a lot of uh, photographs from him. But you know, if I kept them here and I happened to pass away... You know, there's no place that I could uh, put these photos where they could be preserved. Yeah. In Brussels, uh, they've got a whole uh, building, the second floor, completely for that uh, one reason, is to preserve all of this. Uh, they're in uh, glass uh, cases where they are sealed in there to preserve a lot of these artifacts. They've been through, I don't know how many different world wars, uh, since uh, 1932 to 35, that's when they uh, were sold to uh, uh, the butcher there. And the butcher, they had made friends with a lot of the uh, Lakotas, but also our uh, family there. We weren't born at that time, but uh, he just had a thing for, uh, I call it the respect and honor of Lakota people. 
And so he tried to preserve a lot of these things, but he also knew that at that time there was a depression. So he paid, uh, he paid him what he could for it, and he preserved them. And when he passed away, Francois got hold of them. His, uh, the butcher's nephew inherited that stuff, but he didn't know what to do with them. But he knew Francois was a collector. So that's how he got involved in it. And uh, uh, Francois uh, upholds a lot of the dignity of the Lakota people. And he's trying his best to preserve that and bring, give back to the Lakota whatever, whatever uh, things that he could in his own way. And I appreciated that because uh, that preserved a lot of the things that that I couldn't preserve here. I just don't have the finances. I don't have the uh, a place. Or I don't have any anything to preserve that. And I know our own government is not going to help us in any way to preserve a lot of this, even though that we do have uh, 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 to preserve and protect the like, uh, the culture. On, uh, within our uh, tribal uh, uh, constitution. But that doesn't mean that they're going to enforce that. So for me, it's better that he keeps them there. At least nobody, our politics, can't touch them that way. I'd like to go see it when I'm in Europe this year. I'd like to go to Brussels and see your whole family and the tribe's collection, if it's possible. As friends- uh, you'll, be, you'll be impressed with what he's done. The thing that I could describe that stays in my mind is that the front of the building has these big French uh, doors or windows. You know what they are? Maybe nine feet tall or eight feet yeah. tall or something like that. They're, they look like doors, but they're actually windows. So on every window frame, he's got uh, uh, a portrait or painting of a family on every one of those windows. I think there's six or eight of them. The whole second floor, he bought the whole building. And the second floor is just dedicated to all of the uh, artifacts or the uh, dancing costumes that uh, he had. He was able to collect and a lot of the history, the names of uh, the people there. And now uh, he does, he'd done everything that he could, but he had the help that he needed, even the prince there. And uh, the town mayor or the mayor of, uh, I don't know how their government is set up, but the mayor also is involved in that. And I had a chance to meet him. Uh, so we become good friends that way. But uh, the, the whole collection uh, has been turned into a museum. How beautiful. What's the name of the museum? It's called the Western Shop. If you do a search on Francois Chladiuk. Spell it for go- us, would you? Uh, so I'll try C H L A D I U K Chladiuk. I think it's called Western Shop dot B L for Belgium or something like. It. It's on. It's it's right there in Google. Fabulous. Walter, are you there? Yeah. Okay. Russell Means, did he hear about your project? I saw that you showed some clips of him, and what do you think of the work that he's doing with Lakota? <laughs> Now I don't mean to laugh, but uh, nothing really. He hasn't done anything except show his face around here a number of times and uh, trying to create some news media attention. So if we do anything uh, for the community, I just ask that he be left out because 
he's not interested in helping uh, any of the Lakota people. And uh, what he does is he does it for himself, not not necessarily for the people. And I've heard him speak Lakota, but I, I couldn't make out what he was saying. And it's like uh, uh, the uh, priest here in Wounded Knee, they went to uh, someplace in uh, Indianapolis or Minneapolis, someplace uh, east of here to learn how to speak Lakota. And then he came back and he did a mass in uh, uh, the Catholic Church mass in Lakota. But I couldn't make out anything that he was saying. It, nothing made sense. And uh, why they had to go off the reservation in order to speak Lakota, that don't make any sense at all. You know, we're Lakotas here. We speak Lakota here on the reservation in Wounded Knee. But there isn't uh, nothing left of Wounded Knee except just the name anymore. All of the old people, they died of uh, broken hearts after 1973. A lot of the homes were just completely burned down, not by the federal marshals, but by carelessness of the uh, American Indian Movement people. And I've seen them. I've seen my uncle's house get burned down. I've seen my mother's house get completely torn up and uh, lumber lined uh, in the bunkers or other houses that were completely broken in at that time. But uh, like I said, these weren't done by uh, Marshall. These were done by American Indian Movement, who claimed that uh, this this is for the cause. I don't know. I don't know what cause that they were talking about. But I've seen uh, the selfishness. I've seen the bullies. I've seen everything that they represented at that time, right in, uh, happening right here in Wounded Knee. And then to put it out on the news as this is what Lakota is all about. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, and it, to me, that's a one big fat lie that they shouldn't be doing that. If to have any respect, because that's what Lakota is about, honor and dignity and pride, and that's what Lakota is all about. And Lakota, again, is just another word for human being, but they didn't behave like human beings at that time. They behaved like a bunch of, uh, or tried to behave like uh, gangsters or outlaws. Are like Lakotas. They didn't know what they, if they were coming or going. So that's uh, I call it the blind leading the blind, and the other group I call them uh, an organization of fear. That's that's all that took place here. Nothing changed even after they left. Dick Wilson got reelected after uh, his term was up. He was president at the time of the occupation, and after uh, they left. He ran for president and got reelected again. So nothing changed. It was just a big farce, except uh, Wounded Knee is the one that got completely destroyed. Do you think it's possible, Walter, to heal the land of all that happened there? Uh, the land will take care of itself. We're, we're not that powerful. We're not that strong enough to heal this property. We're just uh, human beings. We're still learning how to be human beings. We don't have that kind of power, but uh, you know, to take care of the property, we still have to learn how to do that. Right now, we can't even take care of ourselves here. That's the sad part of it. So what's needed now, in your view, with respect to Wounded Knee and where you're at? 
For Wounded Knee itself, I think we need, uh, one thing is we need to get rid of these cluster houses. We got a bunch of them all over the reservation. And I don't even know why they brought them in. Wounded Knee voted it down, that they didn't want these uh, cluster housing. But the tribe moved around that, and they uh, leased out property that they controlled at that time to the HUD housing so they could build these cluster houses. They didn't respect the word of Wounded Knee at that time. So to get rid of these houses and put people back onto their own property, build them houses out there, and let them be responsible for a change. I think a lot of that will point us in the right direction. And we have to struggle the rest of the way. But we've always struggled in order to survive. But today, we, we need to learn how to live instead of surviving. And that's, gonna, that, that's a long, hard struggle. And I don't even know how we're going to start doing that. Because most of our people here on the reservation... Speak, they speak English. A lot of the kids, uh, five from five years old up to 18 years old, they speak English. They don't speak Lakota anymore. And there's some in there that understand Lakota, but they don't speak it. So that clearly marks the end of our language. Anybody who is after 18 years old, they might speak Lakota but they're too ashamed to speak Lakota openly. So the end is in sight now. Like elderly, uh, like myself, uh, I speak Lakota, but I would rather speak Lakota, but there's not too many around. My neighbor speaks Lakota, and I speak Lakota to him all the time. All My whole family is gone now. I'm the only one left. So we, speak, we used to speak Lakota to each other. But anymore, there might be maybe uh, 15, 20 people in the community of Wounded Knee of 600 who speak Lakota. So a lot of these things we have to uh, bring back in order to heal what the land is about, what these uh, other, other forms of life are about. We have to learn how to respect them. But we have to learn how to respect ourselves before we can even respect anything else or any other form of life. So a lot of this stuff, uh, they're, not, they're not being taught in school. Uh, they have to be taught at home. And so a film like this that tells it the way it is is very uh, beneficial. But we need, we need to move forward. We can't uh, uh, keep one foot in the white world and one foot in the red world. We need to learn how to bring those together. We need to learn how to step forward, take one step forward as a human being. Part Lakota and part white. There's nothing wrong with that. The olden days are gone. Uh, oh, uh, you know, we can't uh, sleep in a teepee anymore. We're just not that strong. We're not that healthy anymore. We can't chase any more buffaloes because there is no more buffaloes. We, we can't ride horses because uh, there is no more horses. So a lot of these things have changed, and we need to live in the present, not in the past or not in the future. We'll get to the future, but we need to learn how to live today as a human being with dignity and honor and pride. Then we can do whatever we are supposed to do. 
without that, we need, uh, you know, our ceremonies are completely going off the track now. They're all going in a different direction. We need to bring those back into the fold of Lakota. That's all I can think of at the moment. Maybe other people might have different ideas. But we need to uh, talk about these ideas one way or another. I want to thank you both for joining me. It's really a profound honor and moving to be with both of you on the show. And if I could say anything it's Rainmaking Time is about, it's what I've just been hearing. Randy, if you would like to give your website address or the website address for the movie, please go ahead. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Simple, www.thickdarkfog.com. There's lots of resources. There's a trailer. Um, if you'd like to donate, a tax-deductible donation, uh, it's right there on the website, the Human Arts Association in New York City. A tax deduction, we're trying to raise, like I said, approximately $10,000 more to get the, the film ready for a national television broadcast on PBS this summer where, you know, instead of reaching hundreds maybe at a film festival, we'll be reaching millions be reaching millions uh, with our audience. So, And if you're in Los Angeles area, March 5th, Monday night, March 5th at 7.30 at uh, the District Barbecue and Lounge downtown Los Angeles. is a, We're having a fundraiser. We're going to be showing the film. We're going to be having a Q&A afterwards. There will be some food and drink there that uh, you can purchase at reasonable prices, bar, uh, Korean barbecue. It'll be a fun evening. Some people involved with the film will be there. Um, and uh, also I want to put a plug in for Walter's book. Uh, it's called uh, They Called Me Uncivilized. It's available on uh, Amazon.com. It's a wonderful read. It's about 90 pages, 95 pages, I think it is. Um, it's a good supplement to the novel, I mean to the uh, film and vice versa. And um, I guess that's about it, really. I appreciate that, uh, Kim. Sure. Randy Vasquez and Walter Little Moon, it's rainmaking time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day, man.